There are third-party dynamic pricing tools available that attach to your Airbnb listing. I use one called Price Labs. And that software is attached through an API uh, directly to the data at Airbnb. And it knows precisely how many people are searching for a property in a given area uh, every specific You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures and law goes well beyond paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Law Podcast. We have another great episode today. I am your host, Jason Muth, along with real estate broker and real estate attorney, Rory Gill from Next Home Town Real Estate and Urban Village Legal in Boston. And Rory, I have been looking forward to this episode for a long time because I never sound like an idiot when I'm talking Airbnb because we're doing that and we have an Airbnb expert, coach, operator, financially independent uh, gentleman from Maryland. Uh, This is Cullen Tate. And we can't wait to hear more about uh, his story because it really feels like the story that we're writing as well, doesn't it? I'm very excited to jump into a topic that you know is near and dear to us and see what our trajectory could be. Um, ultimately, yeah. this is a path for us for financial freedom. Um, it's a topic that we know a good amount about and something we're happy to talk about. So with that, let's welcome on Cullen. Thank you, gentlemen. I'm excited to be here. Yes, welcome. When we booked this, we were reading up on your background and you know, I kind of had this date circled in red on my calendar <laughs> saying, all right, we got another great Airbnb episode coming up. We did one long time ago with an amazing host named Natalie Palmer. She is also an ambassador for Airbnb. And it was just such a good episode. The conversation flowed so well. So I've been looking forward to this conversation just to see what you're up to here on the East Coast, how you got about doing all your Airbnbs, all this great work that you're doing, setting yourself up for financial independence and setting your family up for lots of dad time with the kids. That's really what this leads to. So Colin, tell us your story. Tell us how you started in the short-term rental space. And, you know, that's probably a good starting point. Yeah. And uh, it started really full, full tilt in 2018. I had sold a, a company. I've always been an entrepreneur, really never had a W-2 type job and was really scratching my head thinking, you know, what's next? I got, you know, what's the next great idea? What's the next big thing? And I had two properties that were vacation rental properties and they were doing really well in terms of cash flow. And I thought, well, you know, I've always been very curious about real estate. You know, I've uh, done a little commercial, done a little bit of long term, but this short term stuff is really exciting to me. It really, really resonates with me. And so I decided to jump in in 2018 and I ended up buying a wholesale property from a wholesaler. I ended up buying uh, an on market MLS property and then an off market property from the owner who owned that uh, MLS listing. And so those three properties really kind of kickstarted me to, you know, go dive deeply into, you know, being not just having an Airbnb listing, but being a short-term rental investor and really honing my processes and technologies. Mm -hmm. How many properties do you have now? I have nine. Nine. Are they all in the same geography? So eight of which, it's kind of a two-sided portfolio, eight of which, which is really the primary operations is in the Shenandoah Valley, which is part of the Blue Ridge Mountain chain Mm -hmm. in sort of central Virginia. And then there's this one outlier, which was actually our first short-term rental property, which is a condo in the Caribbean, Turks and Caicos Islands. Yeah. Do you use any of the properties yourself when you're going on vacation? 
Yeah, actually, uh, particularly the Turks and Caicos property. We'll actually head in there next Friday for two weeks. We uh, historically spend you know two to four weeks a year at that one. It's an interesting property in that, as I said, there's kind of two sides of the portfolio. That is a sort of legacy property that we've owned, you know, and it doesn't really cash flow mm-hmm. from a investment perspective. You know, it's an interesting, it sort of ties into some of the things I teach about the beach, basically, which is the beach is hard to make money. It's hard to really uh, create strong cash flow in all beach markets and particularly the Caribbean is very expensive. So it pays its mortgage, you know, and it's on a short 15-year note. So it's not losing anything. It'll be paid off here in five or six years. So that's a plus, but wouldn't buy it again as a cash flowing property. Yeah. That's a story that I think we've heard a lot and encountered a lot. People who kind of enter the short-term rental space because they're looking to subsidize a property that they intend to use as a vacation home. And there's Absolutely nothing wrong with that is an approach, is it a way to to get that second home that you dreamed of? But Absolutely. it's different again a little bit for a true short-term rental investor, which is I think more in line with what you're doing in the Shenandoah Valley. Correct. Two sides, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of uh, mm-hmm. story there. But yeah. So yeah, it's positive in that it, you know, we do use it three, four weeks out of the year and it's beautiful property and a beautiful island and it pays for itself. So that's a win. But in terms of financial freedom and generating cash flow, I prefer things not at the beach. Right. I mean, it also probably appreciates in value and there's some tax benefits to having it, I'd imagine. You know, and then 15 years later, it's yours for clear. Yeah, Which at this off. point is in six years from now. So Yeah, six years. And yeah, not, not a cash flowing thing. I mean, a lot of people that are getting into the short-term rental game, whether they're owning properties or they're doing arbitrage or they are, you know, just hosting, they're looking for cash flow. When you have scaled to the point that you have right now in the Shenandoah Valley where you have a number of systems, I'm guessing, with your properties and they sound like they cash flow really well. I want to really get into that in a second. You know, then you're allowed to kind of carry that other property that is the right. outlier. And you know, you're not relying on that to pay your personal mortgage or feed your family. Right. So let's talk about your primary properties though. I mean, like you've clustered eight of them in a similar area. Did you do that intentionally or did it just kind of build itself out that way? But say I did it intentionally, um, the whole Blue Ridge Mountain chain, you know, is is great, right? Mm-hmm. It's you know anywhere couple hour, two, three hour drive from the major metropolitan area where you can find a property that's find a location where properties are being sold from the use case of this was just a family getaway place. Be it a lake house, a river house, mountain house. When the use case is, you know, family getaway and you can buy it at that type of price per square foot price point and then repurpose that asset into a full occupancy short-term rental business. That's where the real strong opportunity is, is in that mm-hmm. repurposing. I focus them all in the same county. It's just scale up operations. You know, I can go and bounce between them really easily when I need yeah. to. I've seen on your social media, it looks like you work on your properties yourself at times. <laughs> Talk about buying turnkey versus buying something that needs a lot of work. You know, my wife and I um, you know, operate uh, the renovations together. She, she likes to say she likes to buy them crispy, you know, meaning that, uh, you know, some deferred maintenance would be the professional term and then put, you know, her own touches on them, do more renovations. I prefer a little more turnkey, but really it boils down to, you know, what's available, what you can find in the market and what fits your skill set. If you're working a nine to five W2 job, you know, you might not have, you know, this last property, she, my wife's actually polishing floors right now at a place, you know, we've basically in and out of it for the last 
two months, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it needed renovations. So not everybody has the time to do that, right? So if, if you are working a full-time job, then something a little more turnkey where you can go spend a few weekends and get it ready uh, is a better approach. Yeah. But you started this in 2018, you said. So it's only yes. been a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, four years. We bought our first place in 2016 just to, you know, kind of compare some notes. I was working a W2 job that whole time. I think that I started at that last position five months before we bought the first place. And we honestly had no idea what we were doing. We bought it not quite on a whim. We bought it, we bought it with intent. Like it was down the street from uh, some family members and we knew we'd be visiting that area a lot. And it just seemed like a really good deal. So we bought it and sure enough, you know, turned into a great deal where we used the property, but we also rented it, turned into a great cash flowing property where we eventually bought the lots next door uh, to build on, which we're doing right now, and then bought the property right next to that to do another Airbnb. And that one just went live uh, as we record this, just went live this week. We just got two bookings in the past two days. Congratulations. So yeah, thank you. And I mentioned to you before I hit record, I'm like, if I get one more booking this week, I'm jacking the prices up today. So that leads me to, to, to pricing. So, you know, if you can give some advice to some people that are saying, geez, oh. this sounds awesome. I don't know where to begin. I don't even know where to charge. Like, what would you say? There's a Great technological and process answer to that. So 95% of hosts are, are doing what I call like set it and forget it pricing, right? Mm-hmm. $200 a night, plug it into the calendar. And what happens is your weekends fill up real quick and your weekdays stay vacant. So if that sounds familiar to anybody, the solution is a technological one. There are third-party dynamic pricing tools available that attach to your Airbnb listing. I use one called Price Labs. And that software is attached through an API directly to the data at Airbnb. And it knows precisely how many people are searching for a property in a given area every specific day. It knows that historic information as well. And it knows the uh, current occupancy. So with a software like that, you would set a base price of say $200. And then the software would adjust automatically for you uh, your price upwards in the case of high demand. So let's say there's a concert coming in town or, you know, a fair or, you know, it's a college graduation weekend. It would apply a factor to that $200 price and maybe that makes your weekend price more like $400. And so on the other side, you know, if the property is vacant next Tuesday night, Tuesday and Wednesday night of next week, it will say, well, that's pretty close. Let's start cutting those prices down. And so what that does is it maximizes your revenue by getting those higher prices, but equally important, it maximizes your occupancy. A lot of people don't think of Airbnb as a search engine, but it is. It's an interest algorithm. And so when you can start thinking about, well, what would the algorithm prefer? What are the things that are going to make the algorithm like me better? Meaning they have to decide in which order to show properties. So if there's 300 properties in a market, can't show them all at once and it doesn't make sense to show them randomly. So it will show them, you know, there's a lot of factors, but think about what's important to the algorithm, to the company, which is they only get paid their service fees when your place books. So the place that books the most generates, closes the most leads, turns, converts the most views into a booking, uh, will be preferred by the algorithm, therefore will be shown higher in rank placement, and it's a self-feeding circle. So pricing for occupancy. What percentage of people would you guess are using dynamic tools like this, like it versus the set it and forget it model? About 5%. Yeah. Very low. I, 
I was thinking single digit percentage as well. Yeah. We actually are not doing that right now, but I have, I have five tools that are on my list to vet right now. Uh, now that I'm no longer working my W2 job <laughs> and I get to do this full time. So our objective is to scale this up a little bit more. And, you know, we're actively searching for another one or two investment properties, maybe short term, probably long term, just to kind of diversify a little bit. But some other tools, what are some other tools that you're using? Is there anything else besides, besides the dynamic pricing tool? Yeah, so the next big headache, and these are things that I discovered when I said, when I went from, you know, just kind of two hobby properties to buying the three in that summer range and getting real specific. And, you know, all of a sudden now you've got to figure out uh, operations. So I was spending a lot of time messaging guests. And there's another technology, another uh, software as a service called Hospitable which is an automated messaging system. So when a guest books through Instant Book, they automatically receive instantaneously a message back from Hospitable that we've customized. This is thank you for booking. And here's everything that you need to know about visiting this area, right? Jason, if you were coming to DC, you know, and said, what am I going to do? What should I do? What should I see? I'm going to send you a long email with, you know, all my favorite restaurants and attractions, right? So that automated message goes out. So all of the messaging with the guests is automated. So their check-in message that goes out three days before they check in, automated, Wi-Fi passwords, all that kind of stuff. And then we check in with them after 24 hours in the stay. How's everything going? Is everything all right? That heads off any type of, well, gee, you know, the toaster didn't work during my whole stay. So it also decreases your operational time and increases your kind of touch um, with the guests, which leads to higher reviews, which is also mm-hmm. important. Right. Because that's another factor that Airbnb will use to rank your property or drop it further down their rankings. If you as a host have poor ratings, you know they're going to rank properties that are hosted by people that have higher ratings higher than yours. That's very strong. That's a very, very strong, strong driver, the uh, placement. I want to ask about your um, philosophy of outsourcing to and using these different tools for automation because I feel a tension between the idea that it's sometimes great to do everything yourself so you understand what's going on. And by that, I mean, when we first started doing our rentals, it was nice to do a a few cleanings ourselves to experience the place ourselves. So we know what's involved with all of those things. Then also messaging the guests by, you know, manually every single time, just so we understand what the conversations are. But if we continued on that forever, we would be inundated with that level of work for every single listing. So I wanted to ask before we, you know, go too far into all the specific tools and ways to automate, what, you know, what's your philosophy? of outsourcing and automating? Yeah, I think there's one is spending time in your listing. And we definitely advocate spending a lot of time in your listing, particularly as you're setting it up. Kind of my book answer is, you know, just try to spend a week. As I was saying, this last place that we're renovating, we've probably spent two months there. You know, we know that the hot water heater gurgles. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we know uh, uh, my wife heard a little critter overhead a few nights ago and, you know, it was time to call the uh, pest management company, right? So mm-hmm. we do advocate spending, particularly during the setup phase, a good amount of time in your property. And that's why I always advocate starting locally, start you know nearby, start in a place that you're passionate about. In terms of the, um, the automations and guest communications, I guess I maybe oversimplified the, the automated messaging. Messages go out, but we see the messages coming in from the guests also. We run the Airbnb app on our phones. And so we're watching all of the communications and you're still receive, you know, 
specific questions from the guests. You know, where's the lighter? Where's the charcoal? You know, the automation is taking care of the heavy lifting, the rote lifting, but we're still monitoring all of the communications and specific guests' needs and responding. We'll be right back. Every other real estate rental property deal analysis spreadsheet is wrong. The only spreadsheet that correctly analyzes your real estate deals taking into account reserves, true cash flow, including depreciation, and your true net equity on a property is the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet from the Real Estate Financial Planner. Download a free copy today and finally start analyzing your rental properties correctly. Go to refp.info forward slash free to download it today. Let's talk a little bit about neighbors. All your properties in the same town or the same city and how have some of the neighbors reacted to some of their homes within the same communities becoming short-term rentals? So luckily I'm in a county that has historically been a you know, cabin type getaway community. I will tell one story. So I do have a property and it's basically top of a mountain kind of neighborhood. Well, the property is sort of the highest in the neighborhood and it's kind of a mountainous type neighborhood. And it's a mix. There's probably 50 homes in the neighborhood and maybe a dozen short-term rentals. And this is a rural type of neighborhood. So we did have a situation where like the board director came to us and said, the neighbors are getting kind of PO'd. And I said, what's going on? They said, well, your guests are flying up and down this road. People are worried about their dogs or worried about their kids. They're just maybe generally irked, you know, that there's traffic through their neighborhood. So we got real proactive about it. You know, I bought signs that said, you know, you know, kids at play, hung them on the roads at my own cost. And then I put a specific message in my system saying, Hey guests, we've had previous guest has you know really um, you know was driving unsafely. You know these are mountain roads. Please mind the neighbors. And everybody writes back, "Oh my gosh, yeah, absolutely." Ended the problem like that. Yeah. So you know you just have to be a little bit creative and work with your neighbors. You're on the same side. You're not the renter investor. You know, you're the neighbor, right? So. You know, there was a similar situation where somebody's like, there's going to be trouble up there. And I'm like, I've got cameras there. You want the driver's license? You know, or you want the uh, license plate? You know, I'm, I'm on your side. Yeah, we, we don't want any trouble either. Yeah. Have you had trouble with parties at all? I know Airbnb just changed their policy and I believe they're not allowing any parties at properties now. I, out of 2,000 odd guest stays, I had one situation where I came into a house. They didn't bother the neighbors, but, you know, there was obviously five or six people and it was like, red juice everywhere, right? So they were partying. There's some technologies that you can use if you're concerned about that. There's technologies that monitor for sound in the house and will alert your phone. It's a, a threshold. There's technologies that, like little plug-in smoke detectors. There's a technology that will monitor the number of cellular devices in the house and let you know. There's uh, devices that will monitor for tobacco or cannabis smoke in mm-hmm notify you. So there are some things that we be done about that. And some people use some, you know, exterior cameras. Yeah. We have Google Wi-Fi and we check every so often to see how many devices are on. You can see people's device names. Just started leaving some signs around the house about smoking. We haven't really had smoking issues in the house. I did have somebody that had, must have had a container of, of cannabis in one of our dressers because, wow, that smell <laughs> remains for a long time. <laughs> so, you know, we in New Hampshire, 
is actually it's actually not recreationally legal, although Massachusetts it is. A lot of people turn a blind eye around here, but you know we just encourage people not to be using any of those products inside the house. Inside, is what we say, yeah. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about your coaching though, because you know you have worked with students both um, online and some mastermind courses. You've written books before. I'm sure you get questions all the time about you know how did you get into this or what are the things that you know I can do to get into this business. Let's talk about some of the people that are just starting out. Like, what is some good quick, actionable advice that you can give to the person that just wants to get that first place? You know, we call it finding your where. You know, sit down, you know, with your spouse, your significant other or friends and think about where do I like to go? You know, do I like to go ski? Do I like to go hike? Do I like to go to wineries? Do I like... So sort of brainstorm where do people, where do you personally like to spend time? You know, if you had a long weekend, where would you go? And where do other people in the area, you know, like to go and find a place that you're going to be passionate about, you know, that you're not going to mind spending, you know, a month of Sundays, so to speak, you know, they're getting it ready. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, my son loves to fish. And uh, so when we go for a weekend, you know, we bring the fishing rods and he hits the pond or the river while we're, you know, hanging light fixtures. So my first advice is don't go to a list of where's the hottest market, you know, and try to, you know, invest in Miami from, from Boston, right? Where do people in Boston go when they've got a three-day weekend? Where would you take your spouse for a romantic uh, you know, anniversary getaway? Mm-hmm. And find a place like that. Find your where. And within the market, you know, there are sort of the premier destinations that, you know, everybody likes to go in in some ways that they're obvious, but we've had good luck with, I don't want to say, well, I will say the secondary kind of destinations in the area, um, because you never know how many people are traveling to that area for college graduations, for weddings, for all those other things that make up a great shoulder season, particularly in those areas that are, you know, maybe not the premier um, destination, but in the general vicinity of it because they have less hotel infrastructure right. and you have kind of less obvious uh, competition on the platforms. Yes. So I tell people there's a couple of things you can do there. You know, first you can brainstorm those areas and then if you want to dive in and check them out. So I like to see, let's say, you know, there's a, a town outside of Boston that has some draw that you're interested in, Rory. And let's plug that into Airbnb and see if it's supporting other listings. I was actually just doing did a presentation in New York, Pennsylvania, and uh, you know was doing a coaching call. And this person has a house, and she's moving to Philadelphia, and she's like, "I think I'm putting it on Airbnb. I don't know if it's going to work or not." So the first thing we did is we went to Airbnb and we said, "Well, how many entire houses are for let on Airbnb?" And it was 173. So if there's 173 people that are choosing to keep their property as a short-term rental. Not, they didn't sell it. They did not turn it into a long-term rental. That means there's enough demand there to support a good listing. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we can do, so I like to see more than 100, maybe less than six, seven, 100, 1,000, right? It's kind of hard to stand out in Miami or Atlanta, you know, where there's thousands of listings because we want to get to the top, right? That's the goal. We don't want to be on page 10. We don't want to be on page five. We want to be on page one so we can get the most views and charge the most, right? So a market big enough to sustain over 100 listings, but, you know, definitely under 1,000. The other thing that we can do to evaluate the market, there's another software called AirDNA. And you can, it's a subscription-based software. I think it's, it's different for each market, but I think I'd pay like $25 a month for my market. And it will give you a lot of data. It'll give you the 
average daily rate for all the listings. It will give you the average occupancy for all the listings, some investability scores, some regulation scores, rental growth numbers. So if you're the analytic type that likes to dig in and boil the ocean on those numbers, it's a great place to also then figure out if this is a good market, what's the average property making? Is it making $2,000 a month or is it making $8,000 a month? Mm-hmm. And then the things that we talked about earlier in the program, we're not striving to be the average daily rate or the average occupancy. We can take that average daily rate and then pump it up to we're shooting for 90, 95% occupancy mm-hmm. by using strategies that we discussed for pricing for occupancy. So Rory, Colin just mentioned AirDNA and I think we just got a little lucky with our first property. And I'll tell a little story here. The one that we just launched which we bought last fall. And you also mentioned, you know, a bunch of Sundays, you know, renovating the place, you know, be somewhere that you wouldn't mind being. That was our life. (laughs) That was our (laughs) life last fall. Like, you know, been there, done that. But the company that we used uh, for financing for that property, this one's in an LLC. And uh, we actually used, who was the lender, Rory? Do you remember? We used Host Financial. Yep. Host Financial. Okay. So they actually tap into AirDNA to, you know, run their numbers basically because- that's the system. I, I don't think that we had to supply income or anything for that property, right? I think it was all based on the property. So we, but we hit a snag with that. So they underwrite their um, debt service coverage ratio based on our DNA data for the area. We actually didn't have enough data in uh, in our immediate market for air DNA to function. So we were able to use our own comparable next door, um, but it impacted our our lending options because air DNA what didn't have sufficient data in the specific area where we are located. Which tells me that you know we kind of have a sleeping giant, I think, because we know how well the property that we've been operating has been doing. It could probably do even more. I bet you. You know, Colin, if you were to take a look at our listings and whatnot, you'd probably find a way to squeeze another 20, 30% of it, no doubt in my mind. But AirDNA just didn't have the data. And, you know, then we ended up having to put, I think, 25% down instead of 20% down, which, you know, that's fine. Suddenly there's a couple more listings right where we are. So, you know, let's chat about that a little bit. Like how, how do you know when something is too saturated? A lot of people want to get into this space because you could make a lot more money on short-term rentals for the same property versus a long-term rental. But, you know, what is the upside here? Are we cooking the golden goose? So, you know, you'd asked earlier why I am focused kind of in one county. And one of the reasons is risk, right? So I know I don't have to run detailed analysis. You know, I know exactly what a two-bedroom in that vicinity is going to make because I've got six of them and they all make about the same amount, right? And I'm going to do the same decor and I'm going to run the same operations, right? So how do you know when too many people, like I said before, I don't really like to, I want to be number one, right? I want my clients to be, I say, I build first page hosts, right? I want you to be on page one and I'm going to monitor that. I'm going to teach you how to monitor where exactly you are in your ranking listings. There's another software there, by the way. But yeah, getting over five, six, seven, eight hundred listings, that gets to be a little bit more challenging. So yeah, I'd like to like to stay you know, under those really over oversaturated markets. Yeah. That's like what Rory was saying, like, what about the secondary market? Yeah, I, I favor the secondary market. Let's find those undiscovered places where three wineries have popped up or up and coming markets like that. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Alex Brayshaw. Join me as I celebrate the positive impact of business and what drives the people behind it. 
It's a chance to hear from business leaders, emerging sectors and industry influencers about their unfinished business in just 25 minutes. Yeah, or the place that might be, you know, half hour away from the primary market or the town next to the primary market. You know, one thing we've lucked out on is that it's a destination unto itself, but it's a quick 30 to 60 minute drive in any direction from a cool attraction. Whether you're going to Lake Winnipesaukee, which is a big lake in New Hampshire, that's a half hour drive. You're going to the seacoast in New Hampshire, that's a 45 minute drive. You're going to the seacoast in Maine, that's a 45 minute drive. You're going to outlet shopping, that's under an hour. You know, like there's just any draw. A lot to do. A lot to do. And that's why probably the beach doesn't do as well. They're probably way oversaturated. All the places look probably about the same. And, you know, you kind of have, I mean, there's a lot of attractions at the beach, but like people are going there to get sun. My problem with beach type properties is that we're not getting that reclassification of the asset, right? So like I have a beach property, it pays its mortgage, I get to enjoy it, but it doesn't cash flow. The reason most beach places don't cash flow as strongly is because there's already a rental component baked in. Anytime you're buying a beach house, all the comparables have been sold on the assumption that there's at least, you know, a 12-week rental season, right? Mm -hmm. So if you buy a beach house and you don't plan to ever rent it, you're still paying a premium price per square foot because 90% of the other properties sold in that market have some rental role baked into the, the price. Right. Shifting gears, what is some of your thoughts on Airbnb arbitrage, which as I understand it, it's where you're renting a place from somebody and then you're resubletting it out essentially on Airbnb, but you don't own the property. It's not my approach, but I understand. So everything that I teach, everything in the book, you know, all the things we've talked about pricing all still apply, right? You just don't own the property. I think it's a good way to start perhaps if you don't have capital, you know, you're young and you're just, uh, you know, hustling and want to learn the craft, I think is one of the biggest things that you would get out of, you know, from my perspective, is that you're now going to have a property to experiment with and learn and set up your systems and you know, learn the craft mm-hmm. before making an investment. Yeah. I've always kind of equated it to like wholesaling, you know, where you're kind of looking to bring cash in relatively quickly. You're not really taking ownership of the property, uh, but you bring up a great point. I mean, like honing your craft and building your systems, you know, we had to do that ourselves. Like you, you, Rory, myself, like, you know, with that first property, you know, you sign the papers, you say, all right, well, let's figure it out, right? Pull up your sleeves, start painting. Yep. <laughs> How about co-hosting? Have you worked with students who are just looking to kind of get into the hosting game? I have three or four clients that are professional co-hosts, yeah. Just go into like what that is for people that are listening yeah, to this yeah. podcast saying... So yeah, let's say you're ready to make an investment and you've got a good place picked out, but you don't necessarily have the time or inclination to do the management. So a co-host is someone who uh, handles the operations for you. Very similar to a property management company, but this is more of a freelancer that understands, you know, has honed their craft, right? And they have access to your, give them access to your Airbnb account. They have their own logins as as a co-host and they manage your operations. Maybe they would set the pricing. They would uh, manage the housekeepers. They would do all the guest messaging and you as the investor can just collect rents and expenses. Mm-hmm. Hey, Rory, do you want to throw in any kind of legal questions to Colin and maybe anything that he's encountered in setting up Airbnbs on the law side? 
I mean, this is a question where I think I already know his answer to some degree, but with anybody who's doing Airbnb, I always have to ask, you know, what is your backup plan B in case regulations change? How do you keep abreast of what's going on in your area? But what are you, what are you planning for in case the, the rules change? Mm-hmm. Regulation is the big legal issue you know, in, in Airbnb. So it starts with your property selection, right? So regulation can take place, you know, at a state or a county level, uh, but it could also take place at an HOA level, right? So I have looked at properties near my properties in the same state, maybe like one county away where it's, the county has no restrictions, but an HOA could have a restriction. So the first layer of protection is to, you know, buy a property that currently is not regulated. I also like to buy properties in markets that are historically been short-term rental destinations, right? So short-term rental has been around for, you know, thousands, hundreds of years, yeah. right? You know, we've been renting cabins and beach places and lake houses for, and we just did it through, you know, a property management company. Airbnb has just now empowered the individual. When COVID hit, we did have an onset regulation. So our county, you know, was uh, fearful and restricted a short-term rental use. And they defined that by anything less than 28 days. So we basically pivoted into longer stays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same thing yeah. happened to us in Provincetown. Remember, Rory, a couple of years ago when uh, COVID first hit and basically the, the town kind of locked it down. I mean, we actually have to have a rental license there, which we do. Uh, and they said no more short-term rentals for the foreseeable future, which they eventually opened back up again when the summer started. That was an interesting time just for regulatory reasons and just matters of what was going on with international travel. You know, everything kind of came to a screeching halt. But then our faraway guests were shortly replaced by local guests who wanted yeah. to travel um, just a state away or so. The other you know, regulatory issue that I kind of want to ask, or I should say the legal question I want to ask, um, is how do you vet your guests? What criteria are you looking at? Do you have any interesting ways to predict who's going to be a good guest and who's going to be a bad guest? I vet my guests the same way Marriott and Ritz-Carlton vet their guests, right? which is I operate a business. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, We do require that function in Airbnb. It's called instant booking because they want you to be operating like you know, a hotel. They do require a government-issued identification. Airbnb has their own insurance and support called air cover, which gear, you know, which is basically an insurance product in case of, you know, damages. And then we carry commercial insurance. So that that's actually a good point maybe as a takeaway, which is if you do have a short-term rental or you're thinking about starting one, make sure to have a real frank conversation with your insurance agent because the insurance that you would put on a long-term rental is very different than what you would need for a short-term rental. When you get into a short-term rental, basically, the short answer here is that it needs to be on a commercial policy. And so be very specific. All you need to do is ask your insurance agent, you know, make it very clear that this is a short-term rental. It's going to be used on Airbnb and it's a commercial endeavor and they're going to write you a different type of policy. That's awesome. That's the other layer of protection, right? Is your your personal insurance policy. Yeah. Across 2,000 guests, I had like, one $450 damage claim. You know, it's kind of like when Uber first came out and everybody was like, well, that's crazy. I'm not going to ride in somebody else's car. That sounds dangerous. But personally, I feel now Uber driver, I'm rating him. He's rating me. It's a community. They're bending over backwards to be, you know, on time and prompt and provide mints in the back seat and stuff like that. I think Airbnb as a community is sort of the same thing. As a super host, I am going above and beyond for my guests and my guests know that I'm going to rate them also. 
And, you know, back to the Uber example, if you're a bad passenger, you get a rating too. Not a lot of people know that, Mm -hmm. right? So you might not get picked up next time. So same thing with guests is they, they know that they're being held accountable through a rating system. And if they don't follow the house rules, they're potentially going to get a bad, a bad rating and not be able to book again in the future. It's, it's partly why we only use Airbnb and Verbo. You know, we do have our listings on VRBO as well because of all the protections that the, the sites offer. Uh, we will rent to friends right. or referrals from the neighborhood or repeat guests if they want to book directly with us. I know that there's a really big movement in, in direct bookings, which we have not done our direct booking engine just yet. Are you doing that or are you doing everything through Airbnb? I am the absolute, yeah, I am not an advocate. We could have a whole show yeah. on that. Separate. Um, yeah, we could have a whole separate show on that. Um, there, for a lot of reasons, um, I'm, a, I'm a single platform person. And just think about it. Really, the, the quick answer is if the algorithms are placing you based on what you're feeding them, the revenues that you're generating for them. If I'm on three platforms and I'm spreading that revenue across three platforms, I'm not actually going to get three times the views, right? I'm Mm -hmm. going to get less views because I'm going to get less placement. So I feel it's very detrimental to be on multiple platforms. Let's talk about your book and then we'll get into our final questions because it looks like you just published it earlier this year. It's Host Coach, A Blueprint for Creating Financial Freedom Through Short-Term Rental Investing. How did that come about? I mean, 2017, you weren't doing any of this stuff. Now you have nine properties and a book. You know, started my portfolio. I got real good at it. I was able to sort of compare and contrast between properties, experiment with a lot of things. And it really, my friends started coming to me realizing like, how much money are you making with this stuff? And I had the opportunity to see if I could relocate, you know, my processes in different areas. You know, did I just get lucky in my hometown, right? Um, And I found that those were repeatable. And so that led to more and more people calling me, asking me for advice, friends, family, friends of friends, right? And that turned into kind of the coaching aspect. And then I got asked to speak to a group of Keller Williams uh, real estate agents in Wilmington, North Carolina. So I had to, instead of just sort of talking to people, put all this in an organized presentation. And that presentation then became the outline for Host Coach the book. And we're driven to write that just, just to share the knowledge that we have is so powerful and it really, you know, Jason, you said you kind of hit like three properties. That's usually about the magic number where people, you know, a lot of the people I coach, it's you know, one of the people in a person's in the relationships looking to get out of a job, you know, looking for a second career. Um, you know, at just a few properties, you know, we can start to break away and really achieve financial freedom. And that's super exciting to me. Like mm-hmm. I have my financial freedom, I know what it's done for me, and I'm just on a mission to help other people do the same thing. We spoke with another great guest a few months ago, Michael Dominguez, and he had 10 properties. And, you know, that was his magic number where he got to the financial freedom point somewhere along the way. And I think that, you know, a lesson here is that we listen to so many podcasts and you hear of these people that have, you know, 750 doors they talk about. And if you want to be that, that's great. All right. But you don't have to be that to be successful or financially independent through real estate. I mean, like you're showing how you could do it with under 10 properties. You know, we're at three with a fourth that's coming in line in January and money to invest, you know, so like we're kind of right there also at that precipice. And, you know, if you're listening, trying to get out of a career that, you know, you want your second career or you have that first property and you don't know if you could parlay that into the second or third, 
it's worth a shot. I mean, you don't need to have 750 doors to have enough cash to live the rest of your life financially free and happy. And this is a golden opportunity. You know, I grew up and, you know, friend, you know, parents of friends you know, had the beach house that they bought for $50,000 and, you know, now it's 500 or a million, you know, and I always, 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 always ask myself, where are those deals for our generation? And I am a very firm believer that this is the opportunity. This is the moment for our generation where we can get in, not like you said, don't need millions of dollars and 750 units, that we've got an opportunity to get in, get started with something that will create generational wealth. Yeah. Well, you've built some great systems and, you know, we're eager to have you back on in the future also to talk more about, you know, how your properties have been going and, you know, your next book that you're going to write and your next coaching class and whatever uh, the future has to hold. There are some fun things in in the works. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, I think for all of us, you know, it's kind of cool when you don't have to punch in somewhere and you get time to focus on, you know, your properties and focus on thinking about what the next step is. Let's get into our final three questions that we ask of all of our guests just to get to know you a little bit better. And then we'll give you the opportunity to uh, tell everyone where they can find you. Uh, The first question that we have is, I think it's a pretty simple one and we might know your answer, but maybe it's entirely different. Uh, If you can get on stage for a half hour and talk, about any subject in the world with zero preparation, what would that be? Well, yeah, the easy answer is obviously I'm passionate about talking about short-term rentals, right? I'm also really enthralled at the moment with my son and his sports and lacrosse tryouts, and he's kind of getting recruited into high schools and stuff like that. So that's been a passion, something I would speak passionately about with uh, yeah. no preparation as well. So I grew up in a lacrosse school too. I did not play, but I grew up in New York and went to a prep school in Westchester County. And like, there's a couple pockets of lacrosse. Like Maryland is a pocket of lacrosse in the United Mm -hmm. States. Uh, If you're listening to this out West or in the South or anything, you're probably thinking lacrosse. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big deal here on the East Coast. Oh yeah, it's a big deal on the East Coast. Uh, Second question, Rory. Oh my God, I just went to the second question. Can you tell us something that happened early on in your life um, that impacts the way you do business or live your life today? You know, my parents were separated, kind of uh, divorced at a young age. And I think I actually credit that for a lot of my drive. You know, I don't know if I had something to prove to the world or prove to myself. You know, I worked pretty hard in college. I remember one day in college, I was walking to class and realized it just hit me. Like, I got to feed a family someday soon. (laughs) And that that was another moment where I was like, I just kind of aha moment woke up and went, I got to you know, make sure I'm growing up here and, uh, you know, making sure that I'm taking the best classes because I'm going to have to provide for family someday, maybe not too far away. Yeah. I always found, you know, college, I kind of went through it the way that I was told to go through it. But I, you know, I ended up going to a career path that had nothing to do with the actual coursework that I did in college. And, you know, a lot of young people listen to this podcast and other podcasts. They might be saying the same thing, like, geez, I studied this in college, but like this real estate thing sounds like a way that I could be financially free. I would say, you know, think about what you studied in college and the relationships that you built and, you know, apply that knowledge. Like it doesn't have to be the knowledge you learned about history or anthropology or German language. You know, it's the relationships and the way that you study and the way that you research that you can take into to a career like this and then just continue learning. My wife has a biology degree and she's always, you know, commenting like, you know, what, what am I doing? You know, I have a biology degree. And I remind her, well, you have a biology degree, but you worked really hard for it. Yes. Right. Like it was a tough major in her school and she like went off, you know, she was going go to go to med school. You know, what's that biology degree doing for me? Not much, but the tenacity and the amount I know how hard she worked in college and how hard she studied, that's what she learned, right? That is... You know, it's not the cellular dynamics or 
organic yeah. chemistry. It was that work ethic that, that she has that's beyond, you know, you know, most. Well, I'm going to have to have your wife on next time because I too have a biology degree and I too was going to go to med school and said no to know both of those things. Well, you better um, want to talk about uh, Airbnb design and hospitality because that's... Uh, I also found, I, I knew that the answer was not going to med school when I realized I liked my courses outside of my major more than my major. And I took some great classes in college that were not connected to my concentration. And that was the answer right there to me. I'm like, hey, why am I doing this? I like all this other stuff instead. I mean, like your wife found her passion with the design work, right? Final question we have for you. Tell us something that you're listening to, watching, or reading these days. A lot of TikTok. <laughs> How old's your son? Uh, he's 13. There you go. No, but you know, it's funny thing about TikTok is it's not just little kid stuff. There's great real estate stuff on there. There's great Airbnb stuff on there. There's great home improvement type stuff on there. But yeah, other books that I'm reading, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts on this topic of Airbnb that I about halfway through is the Airbnb story. It's the story of the founders. And when you read it, you kind of understand the platform and policies. You, know, you really kind of understand some of the history. Understanding their origin story helps you understand you know, what the company looks like today. So I found that pretty fascinating. Yeah. Release uh, changes to their policies and algorithms and some of the videos they put out. I mean, like, I, they're so well done. They really are. And they explain why they do what they do. And, you know, they kind of put the essence of the company into you as a host. I mean, a couple, was it two years ago when they went public and they offered stock to their hosts? Yeah, I mean, that was great. That was great. It was, I thought it was such a nice gesture also. And, you know, I kind of wish I bought more, but I bought a good amount. I was just saying, yeah, I was blessed there too. Was, you know, yeah. they, they allocated, right? There was only so much. They did. They but, did. Uh, yeah. That was a, a wonderful thing that uh, that they did. But yeah, you definitely understand the, the founders and the philosophy. You just check the book out. It's well done. Thank you so much for spending some time with us talking uh, about Airbnb and talking about short-term rentals and success in it. We'll have to come back for another episode also because there's so many topics that we can go into. But for now, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you if they want your advice, uh, want to take some of your coaching, become a client of yours, learn about your properties. Yeah, the website is host coach.co. You can read a little bit about our background there. Also have a button just to set up a free consultation. Um, and then kind of for the, the fun behind the scenes stories of us doing renovations and inspirational quotes on Instagram is just at host underscore coach. Yeah. Mixed in the inspirational quotes, uh, quotes along with photos of your renovations and photos of you and your wife and family and whatnot. It, it kind of humanizes the account. Thank you. Yeah. We have fun uh, with it. Rory, where can people find you? Um, if you want to find me, you can find me at my real estate brokerage, which is Next Home Title Town, nexthometitletown.com, or my law practice, Urban Village Legal, urbanvillagelegal.com. Awesome. Well, I guess I forgot to mention, Jason, the book Host Coach is available on Amazon, in Kindle, Audible, and paperback. Yes, we will we'll put the link in the show notes right here as well so people can click directly on it and purchase Host Coach, which is an excellent, excellent listen in our case because we're, mm -hmm. we're audiobook people. If you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, we'd love it if you want to give us a rating or drop us a message or reach out to us, jason at nexthometitletown.com. We certainly appreciate all the feedback and we respond to everything that we get. And that's about it. So thank you so much for spending time with us for another episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast. Colin, Rory, I hope, it's, uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation. I certainly have and I learned a bunch of different things and I definitely have a couple more things that I have to do for our properties ourselves as a result of this. Yeah, it was a blast, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. 
This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.